0: Welcome to the New Books Network I'm Caleb Zachran, the Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to new Books in Sociology. Today I'm speaking with Denise Yonaju about her new book, Police Provocation Politics: Counterinsurgency in Istanbul from Cornell University Press. Denise is Assistant professor in the School of Geography, Politics and Sociology at Newcastle University. Police Provocation Politics Presents a Novel Analysis of the Dynamics of Policing. Denise, thank you for joining me today in the New Books Network.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: Of course. And, you know, I should also mention, too, that, um, you know, you, you are a New Books Network. You're in the New Books Network family. So it's always exciting to talk to someone that is an associate of New Books Network. So that's extra exciting. And, you know, before getting into the book, the first thing I'd like to ask is if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm an anthropologist and sociologist by training, but I would consider myself to be an interdisciplinary scholar who is interested in um, governance, um, governance, policing, sovereignty, and law. And, um, And I am also very much committed to understanding the operations of power from the ground by looking at the experiences of the oppressed. So I find, even though I consider myself to be an interdisciplinary scholar, as a methodology, I like um, ethnography a lot because I think that ethnography has a lot to offer us in understanding how power operates on the everyday levels uh, and on the ground. Um, I'm also very much interested in um, racialized and classed identities and the governance of the dissident, racialized, and working class populations, with a specific um, focus or interest in the uh, special and uh, affective dimensions of governance.
0: This uh, book, you know, as you sort of were saying in that answer, you know, you, you really touch on a lot of subjects uh, that relate to issues that concern people in, in all locations, all countries. Uh, But, you know, this book focuses a lot on politics of Istanbul and Turkey. So I'm wondering if you could just give a little bit of background and history, just the necessary background and history on Turkish politics, especially in Istanbul, that you think are important to understanding your sort of analysis of police in this book.
1: Yeah, definitely. So actually this book first started as a neighborhood ethnography part of my dissertation project. But um over the course of the years, uh, it um transformed into a much larger project on global policing and how um, how policing and counterinsurgency techniques travel across time and space became uh, one of my um, main uh, questions in the uh, in the book, but um, it's not because I realized that how those techniques travel um, globally. But I mean, I was always interested in those questions. But what uh, made me realize is that actually those who are in charge of um, the global governance, if we may say, are actually have a very ethnographic and a very local, localized approach to politics. So I'm going to be more specific here. So um, when I was conducting my research, I found a document, Prepared for the RAND organization in the 1970s, and back then, now RAND is a think tank organization, but back then it was part of the U.S. military apparatus. And this document was uh, prepared for the under- U.S. Under Secretary of Defense for Policy. And in that document, um, the neighborhoods where I did my field work in, and these neighborhoods are predominantly populated by working class. Um, and racialized dissident left wing Alevi and Kurdish populations those those um, neighborhoods were identified as one of the Main targets of counterinsurgency, but not not necessarily Turkish counterinsurgency, but the United States' war on communism, and that made me um, that made me uh, go deeper into these connections between the local and uh, global, and uh, then I turned my attention on this uh, on this uh, on the questions related to how counterinsurgency or colonial school of warfare. And uh, and their their subtle techniques uh, travel across time and space. So Istanbul is important because when we speak of counterinsurgency in Turkey, the scholars of Turkish studies basically focused on the Kurdish region, northern Kurdistan, because there has long been uh, there has long been an anti-colonial struggle going on in the in northern Kurdistan. And of course, Turkish counterinsurgency. Insurgents mainly focused on that area, but my book, in my book, uh, I I realized that those techniques uh, also applied in Istanbul in the working class uh, racialized working class areas, but also sometimes those techniques first tested and tried. In Istanbul, and then later to be exported to the northern Kurdistan. So there's this like two way flow between the two, in addition to the, of course, the global flow, which makes things even more complicated. So, in terms of understanding Turkish politics, I would say that, um, I want to uh, talk more about this um, when we speak on counterinsurgency in general. But Turkish um, state is evolved uh, or established after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, a multi-ethnic empire, and it became a Turkish state. But when we look at the uh, territory over where the Turkish state was established, uh, the populations are diverse. And uh, after the establishment of the Turkish state as a state which is based on Turkishness, in a way a Turkish supremacist state, the other indigenous populations in, the, in, the, in, in Turkey right now began to be considered as internal uh, enemies or internal t- threats. Some more, some less. Some of them were uh, assimilated, successfully assimilated into Turkishness. Some of them, as in the case of the Greek populations, they were deported and sent back to, uh, not sent back to, of course, not back to, sent to uh, Greece, uh, as a result of a mutual agreement with uh, with, uh, Greece. But some of them, like Kurds and Alevis, were considered as um, allies of of the external enemies. So this, during the Cold War era, was, uh, was of course, uh, Russia. And the, and the communist world or the socialist world. So what I found out uh, in my archival research, both the Turkish uh, ruling elites and, and the U.S. ruling elites and NATO uh, in general have a very population-centric approach to politics, and they both considered um Kurdish and Alevi populations as the main centers or the um, as the main corner stores of the left wing communist politics and uh, this played a significant role in shaping uh, Turkish politics and Turkish counterinsurgency accordingly so i do not separate counterinsurgency and politics from one another, because I approach counterinsurgency as a large scale of a, of project of a governance, which is always vigilant and, um, of the possibility, which is always, in a way, which is always waiting, um, or like, again, maybe vigilant of the possibility of a dissent and a revolution. So, in this book then, I, uh, I, um, add- acknowledging this population-centric warfare, I focus my attention on certain populations and certain localities because if population is the target of counterinsurgency, as counterinsurgency theorists themselves argue, space and psyche are two main axes of counterinsurgency practices or strategies. So that's why I focus on space, and its affective dimensions and, uh, and certain populations in order to be able to understand the broader techniques of governance that informs Turkish counterinsurgency or counterinsurgency in general.
0: I think, you know, to, to sort of go off of uh, your discussion of counterinsurgency there, for the listeners that aren't necessarily familiar with this term, what, what does counterinsurgency mean uh, and in this particular context, you know, who exactly are the counterinsurgents? Who are the political dissidents? Um, just kind of, you know, setting the stage so that people can sort of picture, picture, you know, how, how this operates
1: Yeah, yes, yes, of course, counterinsurgency sounds as a very technical term, actually. I would say that counterinsurgency is all about governance. So here I would like to refer to Bernard Hardcourt's discussion on counterinsurgency as a counterrevolution. And uh, I would also add that counterinsurgency is a permanent counterrevolution, and it is, in a way, um, a preventive governance. So... And in, in that way, in that it's very much informed by colonial governance. And I'm gonna try to clarify this, uh, more. So counterinsurgency, as I said, it's, it's about all about governance. In that sense, policing is also all about, uh, governance. And, um, so we live in capitalist societies, we live in racist societies, we live in patriarchal societies, which are based on injustices, inequalities, and oppression. And oppression always, and inequalities and injustices, always produces the demand for justice and also is always productive of resistance. So in our societies, ruling elites are always they are aware that these injustices will produce resistance, rebellion, revolts, and revolution in the in the in in the case of the capitalist exploitation and domination. So counterinsurgency is not necessarily about waging a war against an already existing dissident movement or already existing resistance movements, but it is also about preventing. Those movements, preventing resistance, preventing dissent before it happens, and this is why, um, and uh, this is why, colonial governance has been really important. Um, I had, when I was a graduate student, I had the chance to take a class with Mahmoud Mamdani at Columbia University, and uh, I took his uh, citizen and subject class, and there he shows us, he showed me not me, all of us, and uh, still haunts me, his class still haunts me, how these techniques travel across time and space, and how the, um, the later stages of colonial governance is all about preventing rebellions, revolts, and revolts, anti-colonial resistance, before it actually happens. So in the Turkish case, since the establishment of the country, there has always been resistance movement. So the country has always been a repressive country. It has never been a democratic country, even though there were some flirtations flirtations with uh, democracy. But uh, Turkish um, ruling elite is then, uh, is always aware that there is always Resistance, there's always anti colonial resistance, there's always a, a, a population which, um, which could and is actively taking place in left wing uh, politics. So, in the case of Turkey, it is both preventive and active. But in certain other contexts where there is no active political mobilization, counterinsurgency is still there as a form of a preventive governance.
0: How I does, hope I made
1: it clear. Oh,
0: yeah. That, that, was, that, that, was, that was very helpful. Uh, I, I'm wondering how how policing in Istanbul and, and Turkey more broadly compares to, you know, police... Policing is very different in very locations, you know, the, the police in New York City is going to be look very different from police in a small town versus police uh, in, you know, uh, somewhere in England, for example, where, you know, the police officers might not have guns, uh, where obviously they would have guns in New York. So, uh, you know, how, how does what does the, the police policing situation look like in Istanbul?
1: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm.
0: compared to maybe other places. Yeah.
1: So in Istanbul too, I mean, um, on the one hand, there's this broader global connections, but on the other hand, space matters a lot. So when you go to the neighborhoods where I did my field work in, police is extremely militarized. So there's no distinction between there's I mean, on the ground, in practice, there's not much distinction between the military forces and the police. So you will see a lot of military vehicles patrolling the streets on everyday level. I remember when I first went to the neighborhood, I saw those military vehicles patrolling the neighborhood and I asked them, um, I asked the people in the neighborhood, what happened? What's going on in here? And they made fun of my n- naivety and they said that nothing happened. This is like, they are always here. So it's always very militarized in in certain parts of Istanbul. During the demonstrations, it became militarized in other parts of Istanbul too. And also, as I said, like these spaces are in a way laboratories. So Those militarized techniques are tested and tried in those places, and if there's a need, for instance, during the large-scale Gezi uprisings, middle-class Turks, for the first time in their lives, saw those military vehicles, so they are used to police, police the middle classes during the Gezi uprisings. But what I am also very much... Um, but New York policing, I mean, Giuliani's policing especially, very much informed Turkish policing in the big cities, uh, I would say. Um, So, uh, stop and frisks, it's also very much racialized. So, in Turkey, for instance, if you, uh, in Turkey, in your national ID card, your place of birth or your place of origin is written. So, if you are from, uh, from the Kurdish region, Then you have to face uh, racialized policing. Uh, In that sense, there are a lot of uh, similarities. There are similarities in globally, but also, as I said, it's been really. um, It also very much depends on the class and the and the racialized uh, identities, as well.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the Gezi uprising? Um, apologize if I'm pronouncing that <laughs> incorrectly.
1: No, we are, are pronouncing yeah. it perfectly well. Because uh, um, that's so
0: so central to to you know that's that's in many ways I think you're the mm-hmm. one of the main um, kind mm-hmm. of case studies of your mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. to sort of think about policing and because it's what it's not necessarily an edge case but it's like it's you know definitely an event where you see clashing. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think this yes, uprising has been very helpful for me to understand what uh, what was happening on the ground and understand the provocative dimensions of policing. So in the first part of my ethnographic research, which lasted for um, almost four years, in the first two years I was hearing a lot of stories about the provocative dimension of policing, but I didn't see it on the ground and it was really difficult to make sense of, of, um, of the oral history narratives I was hearing. But during the Giza uprisings, um, um, state violence focused on the neighborhoods where I did my field work in. So it made me realize this special dimension. But I was already aware of the repressive dimensions of policing and how it selectively targets certain populations and how it is uh, selectively focused on certain localities. But with the Gaza uprisings, I began to question the productive, more productive, and divisive dimensions of policing. But before going deeper into that, for those who are unfamiliar with Gaza uprisings, I feel like I started from the middle, so I just like go back and um, give some information on Gaza uprisings. So in 2013, there has been a there had been a large scale uprisings in Istanbul, um, in downtown Istanbul. After the after uh, after when there had been attempts to demolish not demolish uh, cut some trees in a park not a big park actually but surprisingly to the surprise of many activists that I know I remember I was like when I when it started first I was on vacation and a couple of days after I called a, a very active activist friend of mine, and I asked him, like, what is happening in Istanbul? Is it something really serious? Shall I just come to Istanbul? And he said, oh, Deniz, don't never mind. I don't think it will take more than a day or so. This is just like just like something very small. But then it turned into a large-scale uprisings and millions of people um, took part in it. And, and it also... Um, in other parts of turkey also there had been uprisings as well but uh, as one of my uh, interlocutors from the neighborhoods where i did my field work argued even the turkish middle classes began to show their express their dissent so what was really significant about these uh, uprisings perhaps is that turkish middle classes those who are among the most privileged groups in Turkey began to express their dissent and rage against the government. So I think that's what that was. What what was really specific about these uprisings? Because in the neighborhoods there's always been a continuous political resistance, and in northern Kurdistan as well. So there's already there has already been. A strong um, resistance in those neighborhoods, but of course, uh, or in northern Kurdistan. But of course, when middle classes um, rebel, uh, it always attracts more uh, attention. So, in terms of my research, shall I continue? Or yeah?
0: oh yes, please. Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: in terms of my research, um, what was really striking for me is that. State violence focused on those neighborhoods. And I realized that, that the concentration of the state violence in those neighborhoods were actually a counterinsurgent policing attempt to divide the, divide the rebellious masses who came together um, in dissent against the government across ethno-racialized, sectarian, and classed. Lines. So when the uh, when the violence focused on those neighborhoods, first of all, a lot of neighborhood youths who are um, who are members of socialist organizations and who are very active, dissenting against the state for for decades long, they had to go to the neighborhoods to fight police power. And those fights, um, at the same time, gang violence also concentrated in those neighborhoods. So what was what we were witnessing is that hyper-policing, in, the, in one sense, and, uh, and under-policing when it comes to the threats posed by the securities. So at the same time, when the police violence concentrated in those neighborhoods, there had been a lot of... Um, gang violence, which resulted with death. And the neighborhoods, the people in the neighborhoods, the residents feel, felt defenseless. So there was no way to uh, defend themselves against the gangs and against the state security apparatus. And this gradually actually paved the way for uh, for counter violence um, violence of the revolutionary groups so i was always hearing about uh, people the residents complaining about the violence of the revolutionary groups in the 19 from the 1990s as well but during the Giza uprisings i realized i saw this massive force which pushes the youth into that violence, that, that, that that really enormous force of the security state. And why is this happening? It works. This is one of the main counterinsurgency techniques that is globally used in Northern Ireland, for instance, like for a long, long time in South America, South Africa during the anti-apartheid movement. So what happens when the state security apparatus forces the rebellious populations, the dissident populations, Populations into violence. This also used against the Black Panther movement in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. It works perfectly at multiple levels according to the logics of counterinsurgency, policing, and governance. First of all, when the dissident populations engage in counter violence, not all sorts of counter violence, but the kind of counter-violence that may pose threat against the communities they are, they are supposed to be defending, um, they are supposed to be protecting, or the communities they need their defense, the communities they are subjected to police and security states' violence, they are delegitimized both in the eyes they are and their politics, what they represent, is delegitimized in the eyes of their constituency, first of all, the p- among those who are more, most sympathetic to their cause and their fight. In the larger scale, because these communities, because the targets of the police violence, the targets of the security state, are always racialized and are always classed, it also contributes to their further racialization as unruly subjects. All these colonial discourses come back, the savages, the unruly, uncivilized populations. So at the greater level during the Geza uprisings, this is what happened. The Alevi and Kurdish working classes began to be racialized in their uh, in the eyes of their middle-class allies who were fighting together just like two weeks ago, for instance, as unruly people, as untrustable people. So it led to a racialized and classed uh, division among the dissident forces. So what happened during the Giza Uprisings, actually? The state security apparatus went back to its archive of counterinsurgency and took out this Commonly used counterinsurgency technique, uh, and globally, as I said, against uh, against the dissent, and it worked. Um, it worked very well, unfortunately. But what's also really important in Gaza uprisings, in understanding the Gaza uprisings, is that during the Gaza uprisings there was a. Um, peace talk between the Kurdish liberation movement and the Turkish state. So it was not just an ordinary moment in Turkish history, which became extraordinary after the, or with the Geza uprisings, but it was already an an extraordinary uh, moment. Turkish state's main enemy and the Turkish state were on uh, peace talks, on um, considering peace, which would be a rite of passage in Turkish history, and uh, that didn't happen. So it was also extremely important to uh, isolate the Kurdish movement or racialize, stigmatize the Kurdish um, liberation movement in the eyes of the uh, Turkish middle classes too. I don't know if I'm making... Sense here, or yeah,
0: uh, that 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 I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, you it's it's interesting how you gathered a lot of this information. Um, I think it would also be you know very interesting to listeners to hear, you know, you were talking about some of your engagements, talking with activists, how you, um, learned learned all this. Like, I'm, I'm curious, and and also the the RAND documents. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about some of the archival material you looked at other sources, um, and also just the ethnographic research that you did, um, and, and what that looked like and, you know, how, how you were, a lot, of your experience of this was seemed seem very, you know, on, on the ground, up close, uh, what, what that was like,
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. um, too. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. So as I said, I first started with ethnographic research. So I'll first talk about my ethnographic research, which was extremely and extremely challenging. Um, So actually, I was not new to those neighborhoods which which have been under militarized spatial control since the 1990s. Um, when I was a high school student in the 1990s, I had friends from those neighbourhoods, and I was already familiar with the scope of police violence taking place in those neighbourhoods. I was already uh, aware of the military vehicles, even though I wanted to forget them uh, eventually, and I was surprised when I saw the military vehicles again. So, That's what took me to those neighborhoods, actually, because there was this like sort of the depth of the witness. I witnessed the violence uh, taking place in those neighborhoods in the 1990s. And also, I myself come from a working class uh, background, so it made it much easier to conduct uh, research in, an, in a working class neighborhood because of the because we shared this similar uh, class culture, and uh, it made things really much easier. Uh, but it was difficult because when I first started conducting my research. Almost two months into my research, I realized that I was being followed by an undercover police. And I was so scared. Um, And when I told this to my uh, interlocutors or friends in the neighborhood, they told me that, welcome to the neighborhood. This is how things are. We are all under surveillance. And I felt embarrassed of my own fear um, and fear, uh, and fearlessness place, uh, occupies a significant place in my, uh, in my uh, book. So I learned to, uh, I I don't want to say I learned to be fearless, but I learned to overcome my fear uh, during the, um, um, when I was conducting my research. And um, this research first started in 2010. And in those years, there was a quote unquote, democratic opening process in Turkey, which just started and which uh, unfortunately brutally ended. But in those years, um, in a way exceptionally and surprisingly, to my surprise, uh, past state crimes were easily addressed. So people were, or even the government members, were talking about the state crimes that took place in the 1990s, all the disappearances of the Kurdish and left-wing activists, and the war uh, that was taking place and still taking place in Kurdistan, the uh, genocide in, again, Darsim, northern Kurdistan. So... There were um, public talks on Armenian genocide. So this was um, this was um, it was a really interesting time in the in the Turkish political history. So and in the neighborhoods there were military vehicles, undercover police. Hundreds of neighborhood youths were in prison as terrorist convicts. So on the one hand, there's this democratic, so-called democratic process was taking place. But on the other hand, anti-terror laws were amended and neighborhood youths ended up in prison for no reason, actually. So that was confusing. But because, and there is a lot of gang violence and drug dealing activity and pretty petty crime in the neighborhoods. So I was really, because I was being surveilled, I didn't want to explicitly ask questions or be curious about what is happening on that time on the ground, but rather I focused my questions in the interviews on the 1990s. So to give the police the impression that, look, I am looking at the 1990s, I'm not I'm not focusing on uh, today. But of course, I mean, I was going to the neighborhood every day because I was working as a teacher in a, a student-run cooperative in the neighborhood. I was observing what's happening on the ground at the everyday level, but my interviews focused on the 1990s. So that's the way I found. But uh, during the Geza uprisings, um, I I started, it became really difficult to go to one neighborhood regularly because um, there were checkpoints at the entrances of the neighborhoods. Uh, and yeah, anyways, it was really difficult to go to one neighborhood regularly. So I started going several different neighborhoods at the same time. Uh, and uh, so in a way, it turned into kind of a guerrilla ethnography, just like going seeing people and retreating back and then going back again after a couple of weeks. Um, and in terms of archival work, I it because in my book I focus on the covert and elusive counterinsurgency techniques. So not many write about those techniques. And when it is written about, it's always about the past, not about the present. And but the Turkish state security state is extremely Cautious about um, those matters, uh, so they don't write about those things on the, in the past too. But um, one of the my, what I had two leads actually, which made me go further in the archival research. So one is what I realized during the ethnography is that oh, this is not about um, only repression or disciplining. The security state is actually provoking violence in here because what my main puzzle when I was writing the book was that all the peaceful, community-minded, friendly, collegial revolutionaries, leftists, were in prison as terrorist convicts, but there was still armed and masked revolutionary vigilantism going on in the neighborhoods. So how is this possible? How are are all these collaborative guys, community-minded guys, guys who are collaborating with several different organizations, are in prison, and yet more than a decade, there is armed and masked revolutionary vigilantism going on in the neighborhood. What is the conditions of possibility of this? And when I was questioning this, I realized that, of course, the state is happy with this because you have to turn the left-wing revolutionary into a security threat because when it is armed and masked, it doesn't only pose a security threat, to the security state, but also to the people, because you never know what's behind the mask, who is behind the mask. Behind the mask could well be an undercover police officer, behind the mask could uh, well be an agent provocateur. So, uh, Gary Marx's arg- article and work on agent provocateurs had been really helpful in racializing, further racializing, and stigmatizing. Um, the Black Panthers, uh, and also uh, Nicholas Haynes, uh, back in the 1990s during the height of the apartheid movement, wrote an article saying how, showing how uh, the white um, rulers are actually uh, provoking. Um, black vigilantes into violence. And he says that this is actually informed by counterinsurgency techniques that are applied in Algeria. Uh, Algeria, And he says the one of the highest-ranked security officers of South Africa at the time was an observant in Algeria during the Algerian liberation war. So I looked, uh, and that guy, uh, Boeuf, wrote uh, several books on counterinsurgency. I looked uh, those books up, and I realized that Turkish um, military press... Translated those books into Turkish and assigned them as required books uh, in the Turkish Military Academy. So one of that, uh, that is one of my leads to make that connection. So um, then I uh, looked at the writings of the high-rank um, police officers or military officers. There had been some few, very few military officers who who provided information on uh, in the in Turkish National, national Assembly's discussions on counterinsurgency and they, they, provided discussion, they provided information on where Turkish um, military officers were trained at. So Fort Bragg in North Carolina, the US military counterinsurgency school, Fort Benning were the schools they were educated at. Um, I looked at the CIA's online archive. So it's really an interesting archival uh, research experience because uh, half of the documents are erased. So you open up one file, and you, in some files you can only see just like one sentence. But that also showed me how the CIA, for instance, again has a population-centric view. And in the Turkish case, they they considered working-class Salavis and church as the main um, as the main um, subjects of the left-wing politics. Um, I looked at the Human Rights Archives, uh, Human Rights Association's archives. I looked at all sorts of archives, newspaper archives, and to my surprised some of the uh, revolutionary journals they they digitized their past journals and uploaded them online so they were also really helpful there had been a lot of um, information on youtube both uploaded by the turkish uh, security state and the revolutionary groups so i had to be uh, creative um, because also I realized that counterinsurgency, as counterinsurgency theorists themselves argue, is a culture-centric warfare. And anthropology, my discipline, is one of the privileged spaces of counterinsurgency. They learn counterinsurgency and police learn a lot from anthropology. And a lot of Turkish police officers did and are still doing their PhDs in anthropology in the US or in the UK or uh, in in other countries, including Turkey. So again, I I realized that um, even though it's a neighborhood ethnography, I realized that I'm going to write a book on policing and counterinsurgency. And I'm going to engage in a sort of an ethnographic refusal when it comes to my ethnographic work. And, I, I, uh, and this calculation, Odro Simpson uh, talks about. Um, so I had to be very conservative when using my ethnographic data. So the book, in a way, offers this discussion on methodology, on um, about doing research among the marginalized and oppressed populations who are targeted by the police.
0: In the course of, of your work, um, you know, as you've been saying, you know, you're really finding some fascinating connections just of the globalization of police practices and just these interconnections between different countries and different groups that at face value wouldn't seem to be connected in any way, but of course are. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if there's any sort of conclusions you feel that you were able to draw about how policing operates, either specifically in Turkey, or, or even generally just about the force, you know, how, how police forces work in, you know, the logic of police forcing. Police.
1: Uh. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I would say that, um, first of all, um, police has a very anthropological way of seeing things and the world. Uh, in that sense, anthropology matters a lot. And one of my book's main contributions, actually, it says, um, so the police scholars, the discussions on policing, um, by and large, focused on the repressive power of policing, police violence, and um, and also disciplining force of policing. So one of my arguments is that policing is not always necessarily about production of docility, but it's also, it's not a Foucauldian project of production of docility, but it's also a Shemitian project of production a, a in pro- project of production of enmity so fascism carl schmidt was a fascist philosopher if we want to call him a philosopher a fascist person let's say legal legal yeah, person legal, legal theorist <laughs> so <laughs> legal yeah yeah jurist uh, maybe yeah yes exactly so fascism and production of enmity, dividing populations, uh, is key to policing. And while dividing populations, what is really key at the center of this project of division is production of conflict and provocation of violence. So the last chapter, the epilogue of my book, is titled Policing as the Generation of Disorder. So the critical scholars of policing argue that policing provides order, and that order is the capitalist, racist, patriarchal order. So in addition, uh, my my contribution to this uh, this conversations, to this literature, is that order, this capitalist, racist, patriarchal, heteronormativist order, is also maintained and protected through production of disorder. So police are also concerned with production of disorder and uh, enmity among diverse populations who may who may or who can potentially come together in action. And this is informed by the colonial school of warfare or colonial governance. So we have to, in understanding Turkish politics, I would say we have to put colonialism and colonial governance at the center. The coloniality of the Turkish security state at the center. So, in terms of Turkish politics, that's the other contribution of the book.
0: Right, and I'm sure you know it applies. Uh, you know your example of of the, how Al- the Algerian War informed.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. You know,
0: these various practices is such a great example of that. Um, well, Denise, it was so great to talk with you. This is, you know, a very fascinating topic. And I think that you approached it from many different angles that come together to really shine interesting light on this topic. So uh, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: Of course. Have a great day.